Greetings, my church. I guess you could tell that uh, if I'm up here on uh, like this <clears throat> and recording the sermon to, to be able to upload it, uh, we did have another uh, Wi-Fi outage. Our internet uh, failed again, and that's why uh, our live stream failed. So I want to apologize and uh, just ask you to have some patience. Um, as a matter of fact, it wasn't the only technical problem that we had. We were supposed to have a baptism uh, on Sabbath. And um, we uh, came in, uh, Gilbert uh, came in in the morning and the water was just leaking out of the baptistry and we had to release it. If we would have left it in there any longer, I think we would have flooded the entire back and probably out into the platform. And so, um, Leo and Emma Anderson, who we were going to be baptizing, they understood and, and, uh, and forgave us. So if they could, I, I hope you can too. And uh, we'll get to the bottom of this uh, live stream. Uh, meanwhile, um, thank you for uh, checking uh, the sermon out from Sabbath. I'll get it to you today. Um, I began the sermon with the scripture reading and the scripture reading was John chapter one and verse 29, it begins with John the Baptist. Uh, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on whom behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I didn't recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I've seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained on him. I didn't recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. You know, in Daniel chapter seven, when uh, Daniel kind of, uh, when God say to Daniel, recasts his vision that he had back in chapter two uh, with the, the statue, but in chapter seven, the metals in the statue are replaced by beasts. He said about this fourth beast who we know will become Rome. He described Rome this way. I saw in the visions by night a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces and stamping what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that preceded it and it had 10 horns. And then later in, in verse 23, uh, Gabriel translates the vision for, for um, Daniel because Daniel wants to know about this fourth beast out of the entire vision. This is the one that disturbs him the most. And he says, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth to be different than all the other kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. When Daniel describes Rome in his visions, it always has to do with iron. And it's a beast he can't describe. In the rest of the vision, he has a zoological classification for the other beasts. He could recognize one like a lion and one like a bear and one like 
a leopard, if you will. But this one, this fourth one, he cannot describe. That's because there was none like it before and there will be none like it after. What began with a myth of Romulus and Remus, the two twins raised by wolves, and a little village on the Tiber River in just a few short years turned the Mediterranean Sea into a Roman lake. They had a different method. They came in and they made everything their own. They didn't destroy and kill. They made everything their own, and that way they were able to uh, benefit from the best that whatever that nation had to offer. Now, yes, there was a few that were made examples of, and the peace of Rome was peaceful because everybody was simply scared to death. But for the most part, Rome allowed you to exist. You could live and thrive as long as you did two things. And the two things that you had to do was uh, pay allegiance to uh, the emperor and to pay your taxes. And it worked extremely well except for this tiny little region in the desert called Palestine. Israel was soon known as a thorn in the side of the empire. Why? Well, number one is they had only one God. We are told that the Senate laughed at this when they found out that they had only one God. And if, if they have only one God, then they're not gonna be too keen on worshiping the emperor. They, if you don't have a cabinet of gods, you can't just take one uh, and, and label him Caesar and put him up there. So you gotta be worried about rebellion in a place like this because those taxes that, the, that Caesar would be demanding since they don't worship him and won't worship him as God, maybe they don't want to pay those taxes either because those taxes belong to the one God that they worship. And I remember Pastor Don Pate in describing this, saying that rebellion is always on the horizon in a place like that. It took nine garrison cities, nine fortresses, in order to govern that tiny little place uh, known as Israel. In Egypt, they had one, 10 times the land mass, uh, 20 times the population. They could control it with one. It took nine in this place. And it was all under control of one particular governor by the name of Pontius Pilate. You ask the question, what kind of man would it take to govern a place like this? To look at the two extremes, it would be either he is the best, absolutely the best at what he does, and he's able to, uh, to keep control, he's able to govern, he's able to use violence when, when it's needed, and he's able to restrain when it's needed, or, he might be a mistake-ridden leader who's looking to get back into the graces of the emperor. It could be a place where you send somebody for punishment. Either way, Israel gets it in the teeth, don't they? Either way, the citizens of Israel will have to suffer. So I want to move now in this in Jesus' trial, if you're, if you're uh, listening to us for the first time, we're uh, preaching through the Gospel of John and we've found ourselves now uh, to the trial of Jesus and, and, and preceding his crucifixion, his resurrection. And so the trial now moves from the priests, Annas and Caiaphas, who have found him guilty of being a false prophet and they're now going to send him to Pilate and you have to ask then why? Why are they going to send him to Pilate if they found him guilty? Well, this 
uh, encounter with this man is going to let us know. So it begins in chapter 18 and verse 28. It says, they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and, be able to, and, and to be able to eat the Passover. So I wanted to tell you that like with other characters, if you will, in these narratives than from the other gospels, Pilate has a much more central role in the gospel of John. John gives us a whole lot more detail about the man than the others. And one thing that I want you to note, to, to remember though, to remember from, from uh, last week, uh, that you have to remember that it isn't Pilate that's in charge here. Yes, he's representing the, most, the mightiest power on earth, the Roman Empire, but even he is not in charge. You have to remember that Jesus has orchestrated this. Jesus has brought himself to this point. And although Pilate will play this central role in all of this, he's a fascinating character. And I'll admit every time that I uh, come and encounter Pilate in my studies and encounter him in, in, in preaching and teaching, he's a very sympathetic character on my part. I would love to know more about him. And maybe someday we'll know um, all about him, but he's fascinating. And one of the things that I want you to note is that one of the reasons why John gives us this information and that is that he kind of brings out a relationship that Jesus has with him, that Jesus develops with him and, and, and to understand that he is the man that will bring about his condemnation, it's fascinating and it's uh, awe-inspiring, actually, to see the way that Jesus treats him. Dr. John Pauline, in his edition of the Bible Amplifier series uh, on John, tells us this, tells us the history of Pilate up to this point. He's blundered several times in trying to handle religious matters. He's in a weak political position by the time that Jesus comes to him, that by the time that they bring Jesus to him in this trial. And this has really angered the leaders of the people and it has angered Rome. The emperor has had to intervene twice now and he's got to be questioning whether or not Pilate is fit to govern. So Pilate is desperate by this time. He needs to begin to please. He has to smooth this over. He cannot blow another one. Because if he does, you know, there isn't a governor's retirement home in the Roman Empire. He'll be removed not only from office, he'll be removed from the empire also if you begin to get my drift, is what we're saying. So this would make him vulnerable to blackmail, wouldn't it? it? Especially if the leaders know, and I think it's real clear at the beginning, at least clear with the way that they interact with him and the way that Jesus inter interacts with him, um, it, there's, a, there's a big difference between the way that the, uh, that the leaders interact and the way Jesus does. But I think that the way that they do, it makes it clear that they know He's in a weak position. They know, they know that they may have him over a barrel. So Pilate goes to them and he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered, if this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. See, Pilate wants the basic charge. He's showing them he's not gonna rubber stamp whatever they want. He needs to uh, exhibit his authority. But uh, they were hoping for it, they, they, and they were hoping for it. Their reply is, it shows how much 
contempt they hold him with. Their reply shows that they don't respect his authority at all, that they know the position that he's in. He asks for the charge and they just say, he's a criminal, as if Pilate is gonna go, oh, okay, yeah, all right. He's a criminal, okay, guilty. I think he's a criminal too. It's an absurd charge. But they need to be vague. They can't tell Pilate the real charge. Remember that they've already found him guilty of being a false prophet. Pilate won't care about that. He will not care that they're bringing him uh, uh, for breaking one of their religious laws. Rome does not concern themselves with a religious law. If the religious law does not interfere with uh, paying your taxes and does not interfere with your allegiance to the emperor, they don't care. And Pilate wouldn't care either. And they know that too, so they can't tell him the whole charge. And they certainly, certainly, he would not put him to death for it. And they're gonna need Pilate to do that. But they're, it's, it's condescending the way that they're treating him. So I think it proves further that Pilate has to be in trouble. Otherwise, a Roman governor wouldn't take that. He'd smack them down. He'd arrest them for contempt. Instead, he smacks right back at him. He says, all right, fine. You know, smart off to me? Then take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. What are you bugging me for? Get smart with me? Get out. I, I, I've had it with you people. Take him in judging according to your law. The, uh, he doesn't know that it's a religious charge, but that's exactly what he's saying. But you would think that that was exactly what they would want. They're wanting him dead. They've been plotting it ever since uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead by him. They've been plotting it since then. So you'd think that, okay, well, uh, we, now we have all the, you know, all the permission and authority that we need. Let's take him back. Problem is, the problem is, is that the law only states that you stone a false prophet. And that isn't what they're looking for. So they answer back to him in the next half of that verse. They reply, they say, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. Now hold on a second, but they are. But the problem is, is that the Bible, the law will only allow them to stone a false prophet and that's not what they're looking for. This isn't what they want for Jesus. What is it they are looking for? And John almost anticipates that we would be asking that question because he says the next verse and puts it even in parentheses as you can see. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. And where was it? that Jesus indicated the kind of death he was to die. Back in chapter three, back in chapter 12, as just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die in order to be lifted up, if you will, or hung, if you will. What death has he already predicted he's supposed to die? Crucifixion. See, now you see why the leaders have to have Pilate to do this. Because crucifixion is a Roman method. And only Rome can bring about crucifixion. That's because crucifixion is reserved for a particular type of criminal. It's reserved for somebody who messes with Rome, who uh, rebels against the emperor who does anything directly against the emperor. It's for treason, if you will. It's, it's for insurrectionists, if you will. 
So why would the leaders want this? Rome will do it if you could prove that it was a rebellion against the emperor, if you could prove that it was treason. Rome will do it, but why would the leaders want this? And has Jesus committed treason against Rome is what you have to ask. But what the reason that they're looking for is that they don't want to stone him for being a false prophet. They want something else to happen to him. They want him to be crucified. And why is it? Why is it that, they, that they're going to have to enlist Rome to do this, that they want Rome to be able to do this? Well, it says in the law, it says in Deuteronomy 21, when someone is convicted of a crime punishable by death and is executed and you hang him on a tree, his corpse must not remain all night upon the tree. You shall bury him that same day for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not defile the land the Lord your God is giving you for your possession. Anyone hanging on a tree is under God's curse curse. See, in the ancient world, in order to make a statement, you would take whoever you defeated. Uh, uh, we have biblical examples of it in war. You remember that when David and, Jaw, uh, and his, uh, when, uh, not David, I'm sorry, when Saul and Jonathan were defeated by the Philistines, remember, they cut their heads off and they hung their bodies on the wall of the fortress at Bethshan. And you remember that it was so odious to David that when David found out that their bodies were hanging like that, in other words, that's exactly what an enemy would do. You take the leader, you take the king, and you hang his body, that way anybody looking at it knows what happens to you when you mess with this king, whoever it was. When you mess with the Philistines, here's what happens to you. Their bodies were hanging up there in shame and humiliation. You remember it was so uh, horrifying to David that he took a special forces team and sent them simply to get the bodies of Jonathan and Saul and bring them home. Under God's curse, anybody hanging on a tree. See, there's no way that God's Messiah could be hung or crucified. See, the word Messiah, Mashiach, means anointed one, anointed by God. The Holy One of God is anointed by God. He is blessed by God. If he is hung, then that is proof right there. That is living proof. Actually, that is dead proof right there that he could not have been the Son of God, that he couldn't have been the Holy One of God. This is what they want. They, want, they just don't want him dead they want anybody who would, who would have come to believe in him, the Holy one, that he is the Holy One of God, they want that message squelched. This would be irrefutable evidence that he wasn't. You cannot be blessed of God and anointed of God and cursed of God also. So they can't bring the charge of his conviction of being a false prophet to Pilate. Because Pilate has to give his seal to his form of execution, to Rome's form of execution, if you will. They don't want him just dead, but they also now would have a way to refute his teachings after he was gone. It's an ingenious plan, and they have been working on it for about eight chapters now. So they're relying on Pilate. But Pilate's not going to be manipulated. He's not going to go down that easy. 
you'll find out that he does have a sense of justice, that he does have a fairness about him. He wants to do what is right. The outcome will be the same, but it just makes him a fascinating character in all of this. Of all the the crooked uh, manipulation that has gone on up until now, Pilate actually is refreshing when you find out how um, honest he is, but he is in a very tight spot, if you will, politically. But Jesus is even able to be more personable to him. If you get a chance, compare the two trials. Look at what Jesus can say, how he was treated by Annas and Caiaphas, and how he's treated by Pilate. Listen to how he opens up to Pilate. Listen to how he he teaches him. Pilate has a question for him. First, he's going to ask uh, a question that is designed to figure out, maybe or maybe not, if he really is uh, plotting some sort of insurrection. So the first thing he asked him is, when Pilate ed- entered the headquarters again, he summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? See, the leaders have now formulated the charges into terms that Pilate will find serious. This gets his attention. Rival kingship with the emperor. Using that word king, that is going to get Pilate's attention. And listen to Jesus' answer. Do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? See, Jesus is seeking to see whether Pilate has a personal interest or a personal grudge or if he's politically motivated or if he's just pursuing something the leaders have put him up to. Pilate says, "Uh uh-uh, this is a legal matter. It's serious to be accused of treason. It's serious. I need to know if you're treasonous against the emperor. So it's a legal matter for him and you can tell by his answer. He says, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Man, what did you do? He says he's only doing it because the leaders of these pesky people, these people that make my day a nightmare and a headache every day, they're the ones that handed you over to me. I'm only here because they say you've done something. So Jesus answers, He answers, my kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. He says that. He says, my kingdom is not from here. Jesus is admitting he's a king, but not the kingdom Pilate is concerned with. He's telling Pilate he's got nothing to worry about. My kingdom is not in your jurisdiction. He even gives Pilate evidence. No earthly fighting for an earthly king. See, Pilate understands this as Rome. You've got to fight to be able to be the king over somebody. That's how Rome has gotten to where they are. But Jesus says, look, nobody's fighting for me. This is not my jurisdiction. This is not the kingdom I'm claiming to be king over. My kingdom is not of this world. The emperor's got nothing to worry about with me. You have nothing to worry about with me. But what's fascinating is, is that, you you know, Jesus knew what he was asking. Jesus, he could have just said no, right? Because it's true. He didn't want to be the king of Israel on this planet. That's not what he's seeking. He could have just said no and made it a whole lot easier but he actually says, my kingdom is not of this world. 
Jesus isn't interested in winning the legal argument with Pilate. He's actually interested in letting Pilate know who he really is. And he's interested in telling Pilate about the kingdom so that maybe Pilate, maybe Pilate could know a bit more about the kingdom himself and maybe have his own opportunity to be able to be there. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to see the Savior even reach out to the man who's about to condemn him. So Pilate asks him, he says, so you are a king, aren't you? You are a king, if you will. Pilate's convinced by Jesus' argument, but he just asked to make sure. So Jesus gives the one answer now that Pilate is not gonna tolerate. He gives the one answer that is just going to derail this whole thing. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. There's the word right there, truth. Jesus is getting spiritual now, isn't he? He is leaning more towards talking about this kingdom not being of the world. He wants to give Pilate more truth, but Pilate won't have any of this. Pilate just says, what is truth, if you will? See, Pilate is a child of his times. He's seen so many conflicting views of truth. The idea of truth is what, is, is what irritates him about these people. Everybody's fighting over truth. There's dualism with Plato and, and humanism, if you will. And there are Epicureans and there's Stoics and there's Socrates and there's Aristotle and there's all of these. He's living in a world that no matter where you are, if you throw a rock, you hit a philosopher. And Pilate represents the majority of opinion as all these groups are fighting over truth, religious truth, philosophical truth, political truth. And he's not interested. He'll do what's legally correct, but he's not gonna mess with religious convictions. It doesn't interest him at all. So Pilate says, I've heard enough. This first time he says, he said he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him. See, but here's a problem here. If he just releases him, then he makes the Jewish leaders look bad. He makes the religious leaders look bad because they've already found him guilty of being a false prophet. And, and so they won't be able to, uh, it doesn't look good for them. It doesn't look good to the people. They'll be asking, why is he out? If he was a false prophet, why is he out? Okay, why is he, he free? So Pilate understands that. Pilate thinks now that they're pushing this in order to be able to save face for the people. Pilate wants to please them, but he also, he also can't in his conscience uh, condemn Jesus for something that he hasn't done. So he comes up with a plan. He says this, I've got a plan, all right? A plan that will save both our faces. We'll be able to face the people together, you and me will, okay? Let's, let's do this. You have a custom, he says. You have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? See, they won't lose face with the people now. If, if they question Caiaphas and Annas, if they question him now, they, they'll, uh, Caiaphas and Annas can say, hey, he was guilty, but you guys released him. You released him because of the Passover custom. See, Pilate saves face with the leaders without having to compromise his principles of justice. Everyone wins here. So he attempts to release Jesus. 
but they're not interested in saving face. Verse 40 says, they shout and reply, not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a bandit. Now, in all your English translations, when you see bandit and robber and everything else, replace that with insurrectionist. Replace that with uh, someone who committed treason against the emperor because that's who he is. They want Jesus dead. They will pay any price, but they're going to do it gradually. First, they'll go ahead and release this convicted insurrectionist. We'll let him go. So now the ball is back in Pilate's court and the leaders. They've got to try something else. So Pilate realizes he's got to persuade them to his side or release Jesus in spite of them, and that won't work out. So he chooses the first one. How do I get them on my side? He's about to try to get some sympathy for Jesus. And it's obvious up until this point, there has been no sympathy for Jesus on behalf of these religious leaders, on behalf of these uh, Jewish political leaders. So it says this, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. The soldiers also wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, striking him on the face. So why would this bring sympathy? Well, scourging practices are documented very well in Roman archaeology and Roman archives, if you will. You imagine a whip that looks like a cat of nine tails, but it probably only has uh, six or seven um, flagellum, if you will, is what they called it. And then interspersed or tied into these leather tongs, if you will, that were about this long, there would be uh, bits of bone and actual iron ball bearings. So you'd have a ball bearing and you'd have a sharpened uh, uh, cutting bit of bone and then uh, same. And and they would be about two inches, uh, one to two inches apart all the way down to the handle. They tied the prisoner uh, to a, a post and laid his back at, at, at an angle like this, about a 45 degree angle. And then a centurion would stand on each side and they'd bring the whip down across the back and when it did, it would flip over around to the other side. And when the ball bearings hit, it would cause deep bruising, it would cause hematomas. And then they would take and they would pull it. And when they did, the sharpened bone would open up those hematomas and it would just lay them open, starting this horrible bleeding, these quivering rivulets of flesh. So it should bring sympathy in Pilate's eyes. Maybe they'll sympathize after they see what is about to happen to them, what they want Uh, what they want to happen to him, and this only being the beginning. So Pilate goes out again, and he says to them, look, I'm bringing him out to you now, just to let you know, I find no case against him. He's still sticking uh, to his conscience that that he's found no case against him. So in verse four, uh, in, in that verse, when Pilate presents Jesus again, anyone with an ounce of humanity, these people claim to be religious men, They claim to be the best of men. Anyone with an ounce of humanity in them would give him some sympathy because right now he may not even look human, which is why maybe Pilate has to say what he says when he comes out. 
Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold the man. Like I said, he may not look like much of a man right now. He is bleeding to death standing there in that robe. Behold the man, Pilate says. And I know that you've heard this prophecy before, but did you ever think that the prophecy could apply to this moment right here? Isaiah 53, in talking about the suffering servant, it says in verse two, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering, acquainted with infirmity, and as one from whom others hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him of no account. No form to look at. He may not even look like a man right now. There isn't anything physical, and this applies to his life, yes. There was nothing physical, he said. There was nothing out of the ordinary that you would be physically attracted to him. Isaiah is talking about the two kingdoms, isn't he? He's talking about the, what the kingdom of the world finds valuable. The reason, the reason that, that our instinct gets us to follow people who are attractive is that we equate physical attractiveness to importance. We give credence to people who are physical, uh, physically attractive. There's nothing, uh, Isaiah is saying there's nothing um, uh, pretentious about this suffering servant. There's nothing pretentious about him. There wasn't anything physical about him that would be attracted, that we would be attracted to him. But also it could apply at this moment. It could apply to what uh, the kind, the process of which this death will bring about for Jesus. He may Pilate may have had to tell everybody or remind everybody that this was a man standing in front of him because up until now he's been so brutalized. His face has been beaten. And like I said, he may be bleeding profusely that maybe he doesn't even look like a man anymore. So when he said, behold, behold the man, that, may, that cry, that word that he used may not have meant anything to him, but it certainly means something to John and it should mean something to us because that word behold is the same one that, Je that John the Baptist uses back in our scripture reading. And he looked as Jesus walked and he said, behold the Lamb of God. Pilate uses behold also. Behold Anthropos, behold the man. So John is letting us know, he's letting believers know everywhere in the future, in the second generation, he's letting us know that behold, this is our man, this is the son of man, our son of man, this is our lamb of, uh, lamb of God, covered with the blood, shed for us, wearing this robe of humiliation for us, bearing our shame, bearing our humiliation, shedding his blood for us the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In religion, the religious leaders, they don't respond with sympathy at all. They dig in. They dig in their heels and stick to their plan. When the chief priests and the police saw him, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, hey, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him. 
It's interesting, the Desire of Ages tells us that Caiaphas insisted earlier that it was good to sacrifice one man so the nation would not be destroyed. And now they were willing to sacrifice the whole nation to destroy that one man. They reject Jesus' kingship with such passionate hatred right now that they will now rejoice in a king they've always hated. They just sold their souls to the emperor. You know, we made a point earlier in, in, in studying this gospel that one of the reasons why they reject Jesus as the Messiah is that they pictured their Messiah as being a King David, a, a human uh, conqueror, if you will. That's what they felt they needed. They need a physically strong conqueror. But you know, now if even David were to be resurrected for them, they'd have to reject him because they just gave their allegiance completely to Pilate and to the emperor. Pilate will give him a preview with his new power, by the way. He's no longer, he no longer will feel that he is in a uh, precarious political position because it said that when he had him crucified, and we'll talk about the crucifixion next week, but they, when he crucified him with two others, one on either side, Pilate had an inscription and put on the cross, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And they said, don't put that up there. You put up there that he claimed to be the King of the Jews. And if Pilate was still trying to please these guys politically, if he was still trying to smooth it over, he has no such residence now. He actually comes right out and says, he just says, um, what I've written, I have written. They've got nothing on him now. Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him, he says. So, I know there's a lot here. I know there's so much here. I'd like to base my conclusion on three things. I'd like to conclude this part of it, at least, by three things. Going back to the prophecy in Isaiah, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Nothing in his appearance that we should, that we should desire him. I pointed out that attraction and appearance you know, um, we, we talked about this in prayer meeting, and I, I don't, I don't want to take a lot of time with it, but we talked about this in prayer meeting. I, sometimes I think I'd like to go back simply to a letter of the law prohibition of graven images. When we look at paintings and we look at movies and all the depictions, and I have, I have nothing against any of that. I, I'm all for artistic uh, um, expression. I really think that that's a good thing. But sometimes, sometimes when we depict the scenes of the life of Christ, and especially this particular scene, there's something about it. You know, uh, uh, if, it, if it's a movie, they need to use an actor. And for the most part, actors are attractive people. That's how, that's how they become popular. And there's, and there's nothing wrong with that, except that specifically, Scripture says that there wasn't anything physically attractive about Jesus. That's not what this is based on. You know, and when we look at paintings of, of him after being scourged, there's, there's quite a few paintings I can think of, of, of one that they call Behold the Man. You know, even the crown of thorns, when, when, when it's depicted in a painting, or uh, it's... it's 
it's so expertly made. It's, it, it almost looks uh, attractive. Like I said, it looks like a headband. You know, it's perfect. It's perfectly woven. It's symmetrical. His face is always shown still symmetrical, even though we know that he's been beaten. Even though that we know that his human form doesn't look like what it's supposed to look like. And why? We try to make this event more attractive than it is. It's an attempt to say, well, maybe it wasn't that bad. Maybe uh, he, it, it wasn't that bad because what he was trying to do for us, because we aren't that bad. Because humanity uh, doesn't uh, require that much in order to be saved. And I think that what I'd like to come away with this is, is that there is nothing earthly attractive about this scene. Nothing earthly attractive. The only beauty in this scene is the love of Christ in his heart. His body is being born, uh, torn. His body is being ripped asunder, it says, that, the, that Isaiah 53 uh, will actually um, go on in a couple of verses to say. By his stripes, we are healed. By his broken body, we are healed. Uh, this, is, this is my body broken for you, he will say. It's being torn up. It's being torn down. There's nothing physically attractive about what's going on here. The only thing attractive is the beauty of the love that still beats in that heart. That he's willing to shed his blood for us. The other thing is to note, in, in still concluding, is that in chapter 18 and twice in chapter 19, Pilate tells them, I find no case against him. See, there's nothing attractive about this. None of this makes any sense on this fallen planet. What he's about to do or what he's in the process of doing now, this heavenly transaction of shedding his blood, of dying a death that only I deserve, that only you and I deserve, this whole thing makes absolutely no earthly sense. If this were an earthly court, it would not be able to be done. He would not be able to be punished for somebody else. Pilate is too fair a jurist to allow that to happen. So he looks at this entire thing and even if he understood, even if Jesus came right out and told him, I'm gonna die for these people, Pilate wouldn't have anything of it. I don't find any case against him. There is no earthly case against him. Earth says we die for our own sins. Somebody has to pay a price. God says, I'll step up. I'll give you my only son. The empire couldn't bring this about. He's innocent of the charges that would warrant any punishment, let alone crucifixion. He's willing to become cursed of God. And I think that that's why he was willing to do so. See, there was one of these religious leaders that I'm sure was there. I'm sure that he witnessed all of this. And one of these rabbinic students named Saul who would tell you of his pedigree if you asked. He'd, he would tell you every time. Born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee of Pharisees, as unto the law, perfect is the way that he describes himself, the way that this man Saul describes himself. 
And after Jesus dies and after Stephen dies, he goes to these very leaders and he asks for permission to go to Damascus to be able to do what they have done to Jesus and his followers. Paul now wants to do outside of Jerusalem. Saul, I mean. And of course, you know, on the way to Damascus, the light comes from heaven and it knocks Saul to the ground. And it's so much brighter than the sun that he figures that this is something else. This is a, a light that he is not used to. That's not sun, moon, and stars. That light that is shining on him is the light of the first day. Let there be light. It's the presence of God himself. It knocks him out. It knocks him on his back. It blinds him. And it blinds him so much that the only thing he can do is utter these words. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? In Greek, kurios, if you were to translate that, it would say, who are you, Elohim? Who are you? Are you God? And the reply comes, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I'm Jesus, he said. He is the light that comes from heaven. And immediately now, Immediately now, Paul has to struggle with this because he says, I'm Jesus. He now, who knows, knows who he's talking about and he knows the kind of death that he died. He was absolutely sure that, that uh, it was good that that who was cursed by God is now dead and cursed by God. But now he speaks from heaven and he says that he's alive. So now he's coming up with this. How can he be blessed of God and cursed of God? And, and God leaves him blind for three days to figure that out. How can he be cursed? cursed how can he be blessed how can he be the same until somehow in the holy spirit after the third day paul wakes up from saul's dilemma and he says that curse was mine he was hung on that tree for my curse god cursed my sin in his son as he hung on that tree and I guess you would say that at that moment when he, when he realizes that, at that moment when he concludes that, of course, there's a knock on the door and Ananias shows up and he says, God told me to come and baptize you. And the rest is history. Because he understands the transaction. Because he would go on later to tell the, the church, he would go on later. He said, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There isn't anything, anything earthly that makes sense here. There isn't anything that earthly power can do. The mightiest power on the entire planet at the time could not prevent this. The mightiest power could not uh, bring uh, anything to stand in the way of this. We couldn't stand in the way of Jesus wanting, desiring, and following through with our salvation. And I'm thankful that we're reminded of that. I'm thankful that this relationship with, with Pilate reminds us of that. He became sin. He became sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for hanging in there. I love and miss you all.